I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today, you're in for a real treat. My guest is one of the outstanding psychedelic pioneers. Her name is Lady Amanda Fielding. If you've already heard of her, it's probably because she founded and directs the Beckley Foundation, which has been Britain's leading research and advocacy institute focused on psychedelics since the late 1990s. But that was not the start of Amanda's work in this area. Indeed, her experimentation and advocacy date back to the 60s, when she first started speaking about the benefits of psychedelics. She's played a key role in legitimizing this issue in Britain and even globally. And not long ago, Amanda teamed up with her son, Cosmo, to create a for-profit psychedelics company called Beckley SciTech. She has led a truly fascinating life, which is mostly what I want to talk about with her today. And she's still going full steam ahead. So Amanda, thank you ever so much for joining me on Psychoactive. 
Well, it's a great pleasure. So listen, I have to tell you, when I, when I prepare for this, I'm remembering back. It's 1998. I had started the Linda Smith Center. It wasn't even called Drug Policy Alliance at this point. And, you know, I get a call from you. I don't even know if I knew who you were back then. And you're in New York and we land up having dinner. And you're talking about all the yeah. stuff you want to do on psychedelics and da 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 da. And I'm thinking, who is yeah. this lady? I mean, who is this crazy British aristocratic lady who thinks she's going to change the world? But the truth is, you've been doing it and you've done it. So I want to start off by saying congratulations for whatever initial skepticism I had about you. You know, that's my bad. And you've been having a tremendous impact. So I want to ask you, first of all, what is it you're most proud about that you've accomplished over these last few decades? I suppose in a funny sort of way, my dream has come true Mm -hmm. because my passion was always mysticism, the study of mysticism from a very small child because I had a very kind of isolated upbringing, nothing much else to do except kind of dream and have mystical experiences. And then I studied altered states of consciousness from a very young age. When I was 16, I was introduced to cannabis and then... Uh, when I was 21, I think it was, I was introduced to LSD. And then most importantly, when I was 23, I met a Dutch scientist, doctor, who was, uh, in my opinion, um, the only genius I've met, who had a two hypotheses about what is the underlying mechanisms which alter consciousness in, in taking psychedelics, but also natural ways of exercise, fasting, meditation, all of those sort of things. So I suddenly uh, got a grip on how you could use psychedelics, which are tools to alter consciousness, and actually control how you perform mm-hmm. with them. You know, So it was like suddenly getting into control of the tools one used. And for me, that was a a magical change because before that I thought, well, psychedelics are absolutely wonderful, but you can't live on them. And then with this knowledge, I've realized, my goodness me, one can. So I realize you mentioned this Dutch lover who has such a great influence on you, Bart, but there were two other men or males, I should say, who I understand had a major impact on you. One of them, I think, was your father. Can you just say a little something about him? Oh, yeah. He he was a very kind of eccentric and charming man. I mean, we lived on the edge of a fen in an old... Anglo-Saxon fortress, which was rebuilt in Tudor times with three moats, and we had no heating or petrol or anything like that. So no one came near us the whole winter. It was a very kind of isolated, in a sense, an Alice in Wonderland life, quite tough farming. And my father was a big influence because he was very intelligent and he was very anti-authority. I remember he said to me, Uh, Whatever the government tells you, always do the opposite. And I always thought that was a very wise bit of advice. And he came back from the war, bad diabetic. And I I was three. And I became his kind of 
his pet dog, his carer, who stopped him falling into ditches and passing out and never So you were like, again. I mean, the youngest so, of four kids. And as I understand it, your family yeah. was kind of the impoverished aristocracy. They had the land, but no money. Yeah. And your dad was an alternative, yeah. contrarian thinker. And so I guess that sort yeah. of opened yeah. you up. He was not somebody to rebel against, but maybe yes. somebody who opened you up into the yes. ways of thinking in more Absolutely. contrarian ways. He, he used to drive over the center of roundabouts, for instance. He he couldn't be bothered to go around them, so he went over the center. I mean, you know, he was he was crazy. But eccentric. he never did psychedelics himself, as far as you know, huh? Or did he? No, he would have loved it. He loved people on psychedelics. He felt completely at home with them. But because of his uh, bad diabetes, I always felt nervous of providing them for him in case it had a bad effect and I didn't know what to do. I mean, he was on on the edge of hypoglycemia all the time because he kept his sugar very low because he didn't want to go blind as he was a, um, an artist. And so he went in and out of kind of control of consciousness. So it was rather like being with a um, someone on LSD, actually. And your mother was was also a free thinker? Not so free, but she was... And she was the daughter of a First World War hero. So she had a kind of certain noble attitude to life. And she kept the show on the road, which I can't pretend my father <laughs> I see. Did. And there was another figure, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say a man, but really another male figure in your life who I think you say you learned something yeah. about telepathy from and who was, a, was your other love of your life in your early years. I'm thinking about Birdie. Oh, Birdie. Oh, Birdie. Birdie. Uh, I pronu- yes, sorry, I pronounced yes, yes. it wrong. But yes, tell, tell us about Birdie. Birdie was a great love of my life. Um, I found him when his mother died on the um, windowsill of flat in London overlooking the river. And I brought him in and I, he was a day old. He had no feathers. And I fed him on a paintbrush with warm Weetabix. And anyway... He totally fell in love with me and I with him. And he literally became a kind of a holy spirit, a superior spirit. He was always the boss. And when he grew up, my partner said, come on, we're going to be landed with this pigeon for the rest of our lives. Let's put him out and let him fly. And I put him out and then I thought, no, I'm not going to put him out. He won't survive. So I took him in and he was with us for the next 15 years or so never in a cage. He was always free. And in the flat in London, we had the windows open so he could go out and fly and find himself a mate. But I was his mate. So all the other pigeons came in because he was a little rich boy of the neighborhood and lived in our apartment. But he, he was my mate. And what did you learn from this relationship? A lot. I really learned a lot. He was my teacher. He was a very kind of dominant figure. Um, There was no doubt he was a kind of leader. And he he was an amazing personality. And I had very, very strong telepathy with him. I always knew when he was in danger. And sadly, I always had the feeling that he was going to rather be sacrificed like Jesus Christ, that someone was going to kill him. And so I was always anxious for him because it was a kind of artificial life in the sense that um, he was a wild bird, but living with me. So he lived in London and 
flew out of the window over the mm-hmm. river and flew around London. And then on one occasion, we took him camping with us and lost him. He was terribly jealous and lost him for 10 days. So then I put adverts in the Times. I um, then went on the BBC News uh, appealing to the nation to find him and returned him. And the television was blocked with thousands of people seeing him and saying he was here or there. And we went all over England trying to find him. And then the only telephone out of thousands of telephone calls which got through was the one with Birdie because the man didn't have a telephone. He'd sent his son to the police station. And because it was the police station ringing up, the call was transferred to me. Did you ever dose Birdie with any any, uh, LSD or anything? He he used to dose himself. He loved cannabis. Mm And actually, we had mites who also got <laughs> cannabis, and they would <laughs> they played with the flower arrangements and at the cannabis, and then kind of jumped up the flowers and jumped off, and it it was very uh-huh. sweet. And I also had two toads who lived with us for many many years, free in the house, and a hedgehog. It it was a very nice ho- household, and I had a very long-suffering partner to put up with these rivals. You know, most people, when they talk, people especially in this field, oftentimes they describe their first psychedelic experience as, um, you know, oftentimes a glorious one. But I think in your case, it was a horrific one. It was a very, very damaging experience. But it was impressive because many people would be traumatized by an experience like that. And, you know, if this hurts you for months and just say enough with that, I've seen this horrible thing. I don't want to go back there. But you came back sort of like the person who falls off a horse and says, get right back on or something. Exactly. Or the person who is allergic to the sea and ends up falling in love with someone who wants to go across the Atlantic on a raft. So that was me. When it happened, I retired to Beckley, the house I grew up in. In, into a hut here in the woods. It was lovely. And after about three months, someone came and said, come on, you must come. And there's a lovely party in London with Ravi Shankar playing. It will be fun. So I went. And there I met this mm-hmm. Dutch scientist, Bart Hugues, who had arrived that evening at the invitation of someone called Joe Mellon. And it was just kind of love at first sight. So he actually had made the LSD. He, he was the scientist. He was the top favorite pupil in Amsterdam. All the professors wanted him. And then he'd suddenly realized the wonder of psychedelics. And he was absolutely a dream come true to me because he had this fantastic knowledge of natural science to a level that I hadn't known. You know, my, my family was artistic and cultured and blah, 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 all of that. But he was a... Um, an encyclopedia of knowledge of the natural scientist. He came from a family of naturopath doctors. So he'd grown up in a household with two bars, and you had a hot bath and a freezing cold bath mm-hmm. every day. So he'd grown in that sort of world. And his mother had died. He said, to be a genius, you need your mother <laughs> to die at 18 months or whenever his mother died. And he was kind of obsessive, really, basically, as a kind of substitute for losing his beloved mother. And 
as opposed to most people who take LSD and think how interesting, he thought, now, how is it having its effect? And he came up with a very convincing and clever hypothesis that the underlying effect was more blood in the brain capillaries. So suddenly you had billions more brain cells combusting glucose and oxygen, and so you had much greater connectivity in the brain. And then you suffered from glucose uh, lack because the brain cells use so much in high-level cognition. So basically, I fell in love with this hypothesis. That was in 1966 because I found that I could control my level of consciousness. I could take the LSD. In those days, we took big doses. Uh, 250 micrograms was a normal trip in, in the 60s. So we took that every day, more or less, and then would have a gap and then take them more. But I found that with the knowledge I'd got of how it worked by increasing the capillary volume of the brain, I found one could keep one's concentration and work at a higher level because we were kind of obsessively interested in the human animal, the upright talking rape, how did we become how we are, why we're such a complete nightmare, as well as being so clever, what, what makes humans specifically human. And so that was our passion. And it was just a very, very exciting period. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second-grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. 
with over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations. Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. One of the things I remember you telling me when early when we met was that you were in that yeah, that you had a daily practice of of microdosing and that you would microdose you know every day or most days of the week for years at a time, and I've also heard you talk about taking higher doses and describing that sometimes when you take the higher doses repeatedly, you develop a tolerance such that taking the higher doses repeatedly almost becomes like microdosing. That, that's exactly. So I wonder if you could just say a little more about your own practice, both in the past and more recently, and the macrodosing versus the microdosing and the similarities, etc. Well, well, I'll tell you about my old habits, because modern habits you're not allowed to talk about. In the old habits... Um, it was pre, um, pre-criminalization. Well, well, actually, Amanda, let me just say that, you know, I think, you know, some of that fears about talking about the present time are fading. So I want you to know that in your honor, I took a little microdose right before this session here. So, so uh, you know, I am in the moment under a very small dose, and I'm kind of curious to see if my producers notice any difference. But tell me about your old patterns, and then you can share about the contemporary ones if you like. Well, I, I too, took a little microdose <laughs> okay. in honor, to honor our meeting, and... Um, in the old days, when pre-criminalization, we used to take 250 normal big doses, but we took it more or less every day. I think it still has effect, but you get familiar with it. It's like um, hungry cows in a clover field. When you let them into the clover field, they all eat the clover and get rather ill. But once they've been in there for a few days, they kind of settle down. And I think getting high is rather like that. It, it still changes you, but not nearly as much. So I, having suffered my trauma of being given this, whatever, 4,000 trips when I didn't ask for it, I didn't really like sudden big trips. And I found that the when you got there and got more used to it and balanced and could feel that one was high and enhanced cognition, but at the same time, one wasn't in any sense out of control. And that was a state I liked very much. Mm-hmm. And we liked it so much, we never really wanted to have many days without it. 
because one didn't get a hangover when one stopped, but one came slightly down. And if you're in a beautiful place like Egypt or whatever, um, you know, having a good conversation, why why come down? So were you were you, were you actually dosing then at the two hundred fifty microgram level for most days over many years back then? No, that was early on. It was at a big dose. Mm-hmm. We dosed at two hundred and fifty. Mm-hmm. But for for how long a period was that? Over months or years or? Well, no one would do it for whatever a couple of weeks and then have a break. One of the things we were doing was psychoanalyzing ourselves, and if you do it on LSD, you can actually be patient and doctor alternatively. If you want to be the doctor, if you want to read the Freud or the Reich or whoever you're studying, you'd keep your sugar level normal. And if you wanted to dig deep into underground psychology, you'd let your sugar level drop and then you go into a deep state of breaking through the levels of protection. And we did that for several years. It it was very interesting with Birdie around us. And it was a very interesting period of breakthrough and learning about Mm -hmm. oneself. And what's been your practice in more recent decades then around this? I'm much more delicate on myself, I should say. Well, let me let me ask you this. I've said this sometimes at the speeches at the Drug Policy Alliance in years past, that, that, that I regarded psychedelics, to, in a way, I, I've thought about them as something that is some almost like wasted on the young. And it's something that one should make a commitment to doing as one grows older, that there's a way in which a strong psychedelic experience yeah. can kind of stir up the emotional and intellectual sediment in one's life, and that that's a good thing. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you your thoughts about what's the relationship between psychedelic use and healthy aging? I actually think psychedelics, and I, I actually have a particular love of LSD, because of its purity, I think in a way it's the most cognitively um, stimulating and it's the least toxic. So, you know, even when you take it regularly for a while, when you come off it, you don't have a hangover. You don't have any craving. There's no aspect of addiction about it. And actually one needs more discipline to take it than not to take it in a funny sort of way. It needs discipline to take it and work with it. And we used to, I mean, we were kind of rather passionate workers. And as um, recreation, we used to play the game, the Chinese game, Go, Mm -hmm. you know, Go, which is very much a game of skill. There's no luck in Go, you is pattern recognition. So it's intuitive thinking, it's using your intuitive brain to see patterns. And Chinese masters, generals used to, instead of fighting wars, play go. It's surrounding your opponent and capturing them. And and it's an absolute compulsive game. It's like life. Every movement in, in life is on the go board. And we were very addicted to it. And I found that if I was on LSD and I kept my sugar level normal, so I wasn't 
hypoglycemic, I would win more games if my opponent wasn't on LSD. And it was my first real experiment on cognition, using myself as the subject. And it actually convinced me that it can, not that it always does at all, but it can increase cognition. I won more games if I was high. And when this comes to the issue of healthy aging, it suggests you think it can keep the brain more youthful and vibrant as we get older? Yeah, from 66 onwards, my life was doing experiments first on myself, and then I set up the Bechtel Foundation to do it um, out in clinical trials. And um, I was always interested in its effect on cognition. And quite recently, doing research on microdosing, We did a research on rats and give them a choice of old and new toys. Rats, they prefer the toys they know and familiar. But if you give them an enhanced environment, then they love the new toys. Old rats, and if you give them LSD for three days, don't play with the new toys they go. So I think that that means that it definitely inspires neuroplasticity, a a delight in new things, exploring. Mm -hmm. Do you think in human beings that microdosing is going to be proved to be more effective if people have previously had the experience with a larger dose, or are they really disconnected? Can people who have never done high dose get the same benefit from the microdose? I, I think they're disconnected. I'm a great believer in the potential of microdoses to enhance certain, you know, physiological happenings and psychological. I think microdoses are wonderful in the sense that they are doing what the full dose does, but as, as we know, at a very much smaller and more easily uh, manageable mm-hmm. rate. And I'm at the moment doing work on dementia more very broadly, but Alzheimer's particularly, and indeed on Parkinson's with microdosing psychedelics and actually having some very interesting results. Uh, Yeah, I should just tell our listeners, I mean, you know, literally Amanda and I are talking in mid-April and just the day before our conversation here, there's this news item that's in the press. I mean, the New York Times, all the media around the world about a a new psilocybin study that was done at Imperial College and UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, with, uh, you know, uh, Robin Carhart Harris, one of your colleagues and maybe in some respects protégés, and basically finding that, you know, they had done, it's a small study, they said, it raises more questions than it answers, but showing the ways in which the brain is different under the influence of a psychedelic in terms of addressing depression, as opposed to using the standard antidepressants, that, that the scans show flourishing right. of neural activity. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And a sort of liberating effect on the brain. So I guess people are excited about this study because it's confirming some of the hypotheses about how this may actually be working. But but that study, we actually did the first one when I set up um, with uh, Dave Nutt. I persuaded him to join me in studying psychedelics in I can't remember when it was um, 2005 or something. And well, we first had to do a lot of work on uh, cannabis to begin with, which was interesting. But I wanted to do LSD, of course, because I love LSD the best. Um, But uh, there's too much taboo. No one wants to touch LSD. So 
we did psilocybin because no one knows how to spell it, what it is, and it has very little taboo value. So we worked on psilocybin, and I wanted to do brain imaging to to look into my old hypothesis of the increase in capillary volume. So we found, funny enough, not an increase in capillary volume, which surprised me. I think the technology was limited in those days. But we found a decrease in the blood supply to the default mode network. And that's the kind of modern expression for the ego, as Freud used to talk and call it, the ego mechanism. And it had been observed that people with psychological disorders like um, depression, addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, all those, had a hyperactive default mode network. So we thought, well, maybe with psilocybin, it will help treat Mm -hmm. depression. So that was the first depression study we did at the Beckley Imperial Research Mm -hmm. Program. And uh, Robin was actually, I'd sent him to study with Dave Nutt, and he'd become our principal investigator. The three of us worked together for whatever, 15 years doing um, Mm -hmm. research. Well, for our listeners, we should I should just explain that David Nutt, um, who will be a guest on Psychoactive at some time in the near future, is really one of Britain's leading scientists and a former advisor to the government who got booted for speaking too honestly about the reality of drugs and, and, and drug research. But, you know, I mean, I'm also curious, in your yeah. past, right, you had this period in the 60s and 70s with the psychedelics, your initial experiences, your relationship with the Dutch great love of your life, as you've called him, Bart. Um, and then you start uh, Beckley Foundation, which really has played a major role in yeah. sponsoring and instigating and psychedelic research, yeah. but but also carrying, carrying out. out. No, no never, exactly, and carrying out. It's not just funder. It's not just instigator. It's also carrying out and hands on and, and all of that. Um, but there's this period in your life. Uh, I mean, what happens with you in the in the eighties and early nineties? There's this kind of quiet period where you're not out there. You haven't created Beckley Foundation, but you're not. It it wasn't actually quiet. Um, I was fully occupied trying to spread um, the word of the wonder of psychedelics and indeed mm-hmm. cannabis from uh, 66 onwards, 1966 onwards. I was convinced of the value or potential value of these compounds for um, human civilization and the possibility that they increase learning I actually myself gave up um, nicotine addiction by deciding, actually because Bart thought it was a horrible habit, I decided to give it up with a trip of LSD and decide, no, it's a horrible habit. And I did that and never smoked another cigarette. So the years later, I suggested to Roland, Roland Griffiths, um, yeah. uh, Griffith, uh, Roland, yeah, um, at John Hopkins, when he suggested, what should we do with the 5,000 $5,000 I had to donate at that point. <laughs> and he said, what study might you like? And I said, well, why not the study I did on myself back in the 60s of overcoming nicotine? And so that study's turned into a very successful... Well, sure. I mean, you planted the seeds for the first significant grant from the National Institute of Drug Abuse for to looking at psychedelics and addiction that Matt Johnson and his colleagues at Johns Hopkins got. So, you know, congratulations. Congratulations yeah, yeah. on that. They're a wonderful team. Yeah. And then that was exciting. And then I do think I was largely responsible or 
it was getting Dave Nutt involved mm -hmm. in that, and that, then through that, Robin involved by setting up the Beckley Imperial Research mm -hmm. Program, which went on for whatever, 20 years. So when you and I met back in 98 in New York, I think that must have been just about the time you were creating the Beckley Foundation, or maybe you had previously created it under a different name yes. or something, but I guess you gathered that it's one thing to be out there as an individual voice, you know, Lady Amanda, and a different thing to be out there as a foundation doing all the things that a foundation uh, can yeah. do. Exactly. I, I found, sadly, that as a voice, I couldn't break the taboo. For 30 years, I'd been trying to, through art, and, you know, I'd been as active as I could be in trying to bring about change, to get scientists to do research, to persuade people of the potential value of these compounds, and indeed to uh, try to stop the terrible mistake of prohibition and then teach against it. But I, I realized that I, uh, it was a losing battle as a female with no letters after my name, I left school at 16, and no letters after my name, no money, children, et cetera, et cetera. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't change global drug policy, and I couldn't open the doors to mm. the research. And so suddenly I realized, well, maybe it, it, was, it was an artwork, really, to become a foundation. It costs nothing. It costs a thousand pounds or something to become a foundation. I didn't realize foundations should have <laughs> money. I just I called myself a foundation. Well, first I was called the foundation to further consciousness. And then I thought that sounded a bit maybe hippie. So I thought Beckley, the name of my house, sounded more like Berkeley or Bletchington or, you know. Well, Amanda, I have to ask, let me ask you a frank question, though. So on the one hand, right, you're dealing with a burden being a woman in this field when there are very few, if any, women, especially in the early years of psychedelics and not having the degrees, the advanced degrees. But on the other hand, you are this kind of minor royalty. You are Lady Amanda. And I'm curious, in what way did being part of this milieu sort of, do you think, in what ways did it help you to open up doors in England to to get through in some respect? I mean, I mean, just just frankly, I mean, do you think if you hadn't, what would it have been like without that? And in what ways were there some advantages? Funny enough, I, I actually didn't, I mean, I didn't have it. I married it. And it's just like having a badge because I didn't have letters after mm -hmm. my name. And people, even nowadays, even women, don't think that one's capable of being creative scientifically unless you've got a PhD. I mean, I luckily had the father I had who said, you know, had no respect for professors or blah, blah, or head people or... He, he he never had that respect, rather like mm -hmm. Birdie. He, in the war, he chose to be a private. And so I never kind of um, felt a need to get a PhD and spend six years of my life mm -hmm. doing that because I felt that through knowledge of it, one could mm -hmm. feel one's way. So in many ways, maybe it was a disadvantage, but one does the way, goes the way one can. But... The kind of misconception about me, funny enough, is people always like to say, I fund research. I never had mm -hmm. funding. I had to go out and um, 
beg on street corners. It was like being a prostitute trying to. It still is. It's the part I most hate. Tell me about it. And it's and actually it's got more difficult now. There's billions floating around in the psychedelic world. In fact, the study we started, the depression study, the uh, the company which took over our study and never added anything scientifically is worth a billion. You're talking about Compass but, here. Yeah, yeah. But um, that hasn't benefited the poor little Beckley Foundation, who is struggling. I'm, I've got wonderful sub, uh, studies at the moment, a whole array of wonderful studies I'm doing. And it's almost impossible to find funding. But anyway. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
Now, you've created, though, you and your son Cosmo have created a company now, though. So just is that just based out of the frustration of trying to raise money for a Beckley Foundation, or is it to seize these opportunities? What can you tell us about yeah. that? that? That happened a few years ago when Cosmo, my younger son, said, shall we work together to do um, a for-profit company? And so as, it, as really raising the money is amazing how little money in my 20, 30, 40 years doing what I've done, I've had, I should think, probably it's two or three million or something. I've never mm-hmm. added it up, but I'll add it up. It's very, very little. And everyone always thinks I have vast sums of money because I have a title and a whatever. So creating a, um, a company, not just a foundation here, what, what's the reason for doing that? And how do you deal? I mean, look, now there's all this criticism of people creating companies. And, you know, we probably share similar yeah. concerns about the abuse of the patent process yeah. and, and the greediness that can corrupt things. I, I have to say, I, I, I am a founding director, but Cosmo runs it. The first company we did was a cannabis company. And we did it with the biggest cannabis company in the world um, called Canopy. And we had a joint venture. So there were two of us and two of them on the board. We had a 50-50 relationship. And it was a dream from beginning to end. It went very, very well. And then they wanted to buy us. And we were delighted. And they bought us. And then we started a psychedelic company, which is what I wanted to do all the time more than a cannabis company. And uh, because he's running that, and with amazing skill and charm, I think he does it. And I'm hoping so far he's kept his ethics. I do the exploratory work. That's what I'm good at. And what I love is the the seed, the Mm -hmm. seed work. I don't want to um, have to have a kind of bevy of bankers on my back and have to raise hundreds of millions. It's, it's not something I would treasure at all. I, I, I wouldn't be good at it, and yeah. I don't want to do it. But I love the exploratory work. And so he's, he's doing that, and he's doing it very well. And um, we work. Well, Con- yeah. I mean, let me ask you. I mean, I'm curious. You know, I remember there was this time, I think it was back in 2006, and I was up in Oxford giving a talk, and I realized you lived very close. And I called you, and you said, "Oh, come on over, come on over." And I go over to your place. I'd never been there before, and it turned out it was your birthday. Um, and and it was basically it was just you and your husband Jamie and your sons Cosmo and Rocky and their girlfriends and me, the seven of us, having a a wonderful time. And you know, I subsequently would cross paths with Cosmo because then he got very involved with this documentary, Breaking the Taboo, which had been launched by uh, President Cardoso and a young filmmaker in Brazil, uh, Fernando Grostin Andrada. And then and then your son Cosmo teamed up with Richard Branson's son Sam to make this. So you know, I saw him getting pulled in this area. So you obviously had a very strong and positive influence on him, but I'm curious, to the extent you feel comfortable talking about it, you know, how did you bring up your two boys? I mean, here they knew their mother was out there about cannabis and psychedelics, and their kids, and so were they doing these things? I mean, how did you feel about their using it? No, no, funny enough, they, they always knew. We never, ever hid anything from them, and yet they were incredibly well-balanced, and they both went to Oxford and studied classics, got a, 
um, double first in classics. And, you know, they're hardworking, charming, attractive, wonderful fathers. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But they grew up knowing what their parents did. We never hid anything from them. And I think that's the way I, I'm a great believer in, in that, basically. So I had a wonderful relationship. And now my other son has also got into the family business, one could call it. Well, you know, I actually know quite a number of people um, for whom their children were introduced by, to psychedelics by the parent. Or, and I have other friends who themselves, when they were young, were introduced by their parents. And in almost all those cases, it may be because of the people I know and hang out with, those turn out to be very positive relationships where the children have turned out well or these ones. What, what was your experience around that? I had an amazingly positive relationship with both my boys. We actually never had a quarrel, and they said, well, there really wasn't anything to fight mm-hmm. about. You know, they were they were free. Uh, the one thing I minded was good manners, very <laughs> firm on manners. <laughs> and the rest they just did by choice. You dabbled in politics in your younger years, right? Didn't you try running for office in the past? Yeah, but I never loved uh-huh. it. I hated it. I mean, it's not my natural place. I, I realized I had to do it to change the policies so that we could do the research because in in the 70s, 60s, 70s, a scientist couldn't do, didn't want to, it would have ruined their career. So one couldn't find a scientist who was willing to do research, actually, or a doctor. And so another of my pet loves was trepanation. So that was another very taboo area. Just explain what that is. I think many of our listeners won't know what trepanation is. Trepanation is making a hole in the skull to allow the vessels, the blood vessels in the brain, to pulsate fully on on the heartbeat. That's an ancient operation which has been done throughout history, actually. I know the person who is in charge of the Chauvet Caves, which is kind of 35,000 uh, years old, and they found a trepanned skull. And it's absolutely amazingly, I'm actually doing a study at the moment at mm-hmm. Yale, with the latest brain imaging technology of optogenetics, they're the first people to look at the effect of serotonin, um, LSD, on the tone of the blood vessels. And we are collaborating together to look into my old love hypothesis of the fact that underneath the changes we experience with um, psychedelics, but also all the natural things, meditation, etc., etc., deep breathing, is an increase of capillary volume. And so we were talking about the research they do um, and how they create a window in the skull of the mice in order to be observed um, what's happening with their special cameras, which can pick up these arrays is brand new it's only just being involved and i said when when you trepan the skull do you notice any change in cerebral circulation and he said of course we do it's a terrible problem there's a sudden burst of activity so that happened last week and it shows our old hypothesis which we've had since 1966 
that making a hole in the skull increases the um, pulsation yeah. of the well, I'll be Artists curious. I, mean, so I, mean, I have to tell exciting. you, as I'm prepping for this thing and I'm reading about your theories about about the importance of blood flow or capillary action, and then I'm seeing, you know, people mm-hmm. who we both highly respect and you know very well, David Nutt or Robin Carhart Harris, and they're going, mm-hmm. I don't know so much about the blood flow hypothesis. I think they're saying it's more about neural yeah. networks, more but, about electric impulses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when Robin said to me that when we did the research and it showed, um, a decrease of blood to the default mode network and not the increase. He said, oh, man, aren't you, aren't you rather disappointed your, uh, your hypothesis being proved wrong? And I said, I'm disappointed, but I don't think it's proved wrong. Wait and see. Let us see if technology will prove me right. Uh-huh. And I think that's about to happen. I'll tell you what I'm doing at the moment. I've got a series of six breaking edge research projects, all to do mm-hmm. with this. Um, half of them are to do with the full dose, looking into the mystical experience. And with that, I'm doing a study at King's, with wonderful collaborators, looking at um, precision as fMRI with the highest Tesla, the highest power we've ever used, seven Tesla, which has never been used in psychedelics before. So we're looking at individuals Look, looking at much more detail, much higher mm-hmm. resolution to see what is happening in the brain. And that together with looking at the microscopic level and then looking at the different forms like PET and all the different MEG, all the different brain imaging technologies, I think I'll, I'll I either prove myself right And how or many of these studies involve giving microdosing and how many are the more macrodosing and how many involve any level of psychotherapy? Yeah, it's it's a Mm two-headed study, a a split eagle, like the crest of the Beckley Foundation. One half is looking at macro, at full dose, and that's the study I'm doing um, at the moment. I was working on it today at Mm -hmm. King's. It's a really exciting one. And then to balance it, I'm going to do a PET scan and all other sorts of scans. There's a lot at different places. I'm working in Argentina. Brazil, um, mm-hmm. America, all sorts of. I I set up collaborations where I find lovely. Well, scientists I saw I one that you were doing with. in Maastricht that involved psychedelics and pain. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That was microdosing, and we showed that a microdose of LSD. Always, I try to work with LSD because I promised old Albert Hoffman that I'll bring it back into civilization, and. We showed that it improved mood, cognitive functioning, neuroplasticity, and pain mm-hmm. management. So now we're doing more into the pain. And since then, I'm discovering how microdosing of these compounds can potentially help with neurodegenerative illnesses mm-hmm. like Alzheimer's, dementia, um, Parkinson's, because uh-huh. my Joe, my ex-partner, got Parkinson's, and a microdose of actually Ibogaine works on the dopamine mm-hmm. 
protection. Well, listen, last last question here. You know, it, it's about you've talked about, you know, on the one hand, the importance of the mystical experience. And obviously, Roland Griffiths and all his work at Hopkins, he folk, makes a big point of that, you know, and, and also at the same point, ego dissolution and the role of psychedelics in ego dissolution. And how do you see that connection between the mystical experience and the ego dissolution aspect of this? Yeah, I, I, I see it really beautifully because science has killed off spirituality and hence mankind is even more lost than they were before. And now, right at the very center of the new science is mysticism because funnily enough, we and, and other um, players have noticed that those who have a mystical experience in their therapy of overcoming some terrible problem are the most successful. They, they most successfully overcome their, whatever it is, depression or addiction or, uh, or fear of dying. And that is, I think, because what we've seen, the underlying factors in what's happening, is the whole brain, and this I think is because underneath there's much more blood supply, the whole brain is flooded with connectivity. And the controlling, repressive part which humanity has, has learnt through conditioning to repress parts of the brain so it can squeeze the limited blood supply to where it's most needed to survive, that's what we animals, we human, upright talking apes, learnt to do. And that was the kind of trick which enabled us to become the rulers of the universe, inverted commas, but also the ne neurotic, psychotic species we are, because it's a grip which takes control of us and we aren't in control of it. And I think the experience of a psychedelic can, in the right setting, let loose the repressive grip of the ego and make the whole brain more neuroplastic, so the person can take over a new outlook, like I decided smoking nicotine is actually disgusting. I don't want to do it anymore. And it's so deep, the change in one, that one actually doesn't want to do it anymore. And I think, yes, do you see what yeah. I mean? Well, listen, here's my real last question. Here's my real last question, which is, on the one hand, we see all this emphasis now on the importance of integrating psychedelics with psychotherapy and the ways in which psychotherapy can both improve the positive you know, effect of the psychedelic and also minimize the chances that go, go in the other direction. On the other hand, the vast majority of psychedelic use is happening outside that context. And I remember you and I, you know, we crossed paths at Burning Man back about 15 years ago. And here we're in this amazing Burning Man and environment, you know, where people are all using it without really yeah. therapy. And so how do you reconcile those two things, the, the, the broader use? Well, I grew up in my psychedelic experience, not with it in therapy. I mean, we were very serious people and looking at why, why are we the way we are and how do we cure it and how do we heal ourselves and all of that. But we never took it with a therapist. I mean, it wasn't just in in what we did, we were looked after ourselves. But I think if you've got bad traumas to overcome, the psychedelic setting of therapy can be very 
very um, healing and therefore very valuable. I'm not against it, but I don't think it's essential for everyone. And I think it's a terrible uh, mistake to criminalize it if it isn't in a medical setting. Because in my opinion, what you do with your own consciousness if you don't do anything which damages other people is totally your private affair. It really doesn't have anything to do with the state or anyone else. Well, thank you very much for bringing it back to the core principle that we're all fighting war. So, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. And your work is amazing. Good luck with the rest of the foundation and your own research and, uh, and, and with the company and all of that. And best wishes to your family as well. I'll leave you, love you and leave you and hope to see you very soon. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Garth Mullins, the host of an award-winning podcast called Crackdown that he co-produces with his fellow drug users and drug user organizers and activists in Vancouver. On Monday, though, we're going to first play you an episode of his Crackdown podcast. And then on Thursday, he'll be my guest on Psychoactive. Listen to this clip for a sense of what's ahead. I'm an old school dope fan, you know, that's the story of my life is I've been on some kind of opioid pretty much every day of my adult life, or most of them, and for a long time that was heroin, and for a while now it's been methadone, and uh, everything in between, and I came to understand our struggle just through my own personal experience with police. People get it all twisted here, they say it's an opioid crisis, it's an addiction crisis. But it's not for me. It's a death crisis. It's a toxic drug supply crisis. You know, whether it's someone being wired to a substance or someone dying. And, and these are completely different things that require different solutions. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Pet. 
Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.